Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Life is beautiful is over. The game starts now. Meet a real-life Prince Charming. 
He has met the woman of his dreams, and he'll do everything in his power to sweep her off her feet and carry her away. Now his fairy tale life takes a serious turn. To protect his family, this loving father has to turn the hard truth into a simple game. Wonderful. Two thumbs up, says Siskel and Ebert. A modern comic masterpiece raves the Chicago Tribune. Written, directed by, and starring Italy's national treasure, Roberto Benigni. In the story that proves love, family, and imagination conquer all. Life is beautiful. Andy, uh, we've got a lot going on in the social universe, and you're still insane. So where would people go to see those worlds collide? <laughs> they can check out my insanity over at the Next Reel's Instagram page, in, uh, Instagram.com slash The Next Reel, where you can see posts related to the movie we're talking about each week. We have uh, a variety of other posts. We have uh, host uh, pick of the week from different hosts of our all of our various shows. We have uh, posts about cinematographers, about we have movie posters, actors. We have all sorts of posts. It's a great place to check out some of the images we're doing and some of the little clips. We're doing some flashback uh, posts as well with clips from old shows. It's a great place to kind of see what we're up to. It sure is. So, you know, even if you just like to trickle a little bit of uh, just just dose, micro dose your feed with movie stuff, ours is a channel to do that. Ours is that's where the ones to add so we are your listen, you'll be, friends you'll be um that's a movie microdose with the next reel i'm putting there that on a shirt today <laughs> andy nelson uh this is a controversial uh watch this movie turns out there are a lot of people who don't feel good about this feel good movie i'm talking of course about life is beautiful roberto benini la vita è bella yeah, this is, uh, you know, I think it's controversial now more so than it was at the time. At the time it was released, it was just this, this, I mean, definitely surprising story that was a uh, kind of a comedy that took place during the Holocaust at a concentration camp. So certainly there is that element of it that made a lot of people uh, scratch their heads, but not all the people, because all the people's <laughs> kind of loved it. It won lots of awards. It won a lot of Oscars. This was largely a beloved film. And I think that's uh, that's wherein the problem uh, doth lie these days. It is. And you just went Shakespearean on us a little bit, a little Did Andy I? Nelson. Yeah, doth. <laughs> doth. You don't drop doth without a real... <laughs> Real point to be heard. Um, I, you know, so this is the first time I've watched this movie in a number of years. And, um, uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I think that I may have sobered up a little bit since the first, <laughs> since the first time I watched this movie. Uh, I noticed my experience of the movie. I, I, I felt a little bit more forehead slappy, uh, than I, I did in the past. And I, I think I've, I've, been able to wrap my head around why I've struggled with it uh, and it its struggle with tone to my eye. I'm curious if it is held true for you this whole time. 
Uh, you know, that's an interesting question because I, like you, probably haven't seen it since the late 90s. It has been quite a while since I watched it. I do remember being quite enamored of it at the time it came out. And, I mean, it's easy with Benini being such kind of a, a clown in all of the award circles and all the press junkets. He really just made it fun to really love this movie and love him. Watching it now, I really see how people can find problems with it. I also see why people love it. And I mean, you know, Benini, I mean, he approached plenty of Holocaust survivors. He approached plenty of organizations that really speak to kind of the history of all this and showed it to them and everything. And generally people were pretty positive about it because of the kind of the fable approach that he took with it. And I, I feel like I see all of that there, although I can certainly see why people would be upset with it. Do I love it as much as I did when I saw it in, in the late 90s? No, I don't. I think that – but I also don't hate it like some people – who say it's the worst film ever made. I don't think it's that. Um, I, I, it's, a, it's a line that is very tricky to cross when you're making a film during the Holocaust that has such comedic elements to it. I mean, I mean, we just, it's interesting that this, you know, we're having this conversation after having seen such, uh, such similar success from Jojo Rabbit that Taika mm -hmm. Waititi did. Another example of a comedy set during the Holocaust that is making light of all this. I, I really, I, I think that there's a danger there in doing that. But I also, I always go back to Mel Brooks and the, the stories that he had with like the producers and stuff where it's a great way by making fun of these things, you, you take some of the, the steam out of mm -hmm. kind of the, the evil of them. And um, I think that it depends on how you read it. So I, I don't love it as much as I did. I think that there are a lot more problems with it than I had at the time, but I, uh, but I don't think it's the worst film ever made. I yeah, I don't think it's the worst film ever made, but I can now more rationally understand why people do. Um, I I struggle with it, and I, and I want to. You brought up um, the what did you bring up? The producers, right? Mel Brooks. Mm, yes. I think and that is Jojo both, Rabbit, several. and Jojo Rabbit, and I think both of those are apt comparisons. I actually think Jojo Rabbit is probably tonally a better conversation to have around this movie. I I think Jojo Rabbit does it better. I also like Taika Waititi better than Roberta Benigni uh, in his just just in terms of my cinema, like my tastes in cinema, um, and and I feel like both of these movies truck in that like there are going to be things that you're going to laugh at because they're absurd and awkward and lovable and there are going to be things that are scary and horrible and we have to face those things and i think walking that line one could make the argument that taika waititi has learned a lot from the kinds of comic attempts at making the holocaust funny uh and he's done so in a way with greater sensibility to the things that people find infuriating with life is beautiful i don't think benini has a strong hand in what makes his movie a comedy versus what things are hard to watch. And it presents with less confidence in that regard that he's so proud of himself for making a movie that the I, I felt more Benini ego in this movie that was completely transparent to me than I uh, than I ever have before. 
in in watching this movie it was um it, it was just such a statement about him and i was never able to really disappear into the into the thread of the film so i found that frustrating um and and that was new and i think that's a result of frankly me being a little bit poisoned by the miramax benini press tour and everything that i've i have now learned and watched and read and um uh, you know starting with his oscar performance and and moving on from from there it just reads as a benini showcase of benini tropes well and that's i i mean I, there's a lot to that i think the fact that this film spends nearly an hour just setting up the, I mean, the love story, really. I mean, we have 50 yeah. minutes of Guido falling for Dora and all the comedy that ensues. And yes, hats, there's eggs, hats, eggs, keys. There's, there's, there's a little bit of issues there. Yeah. There's a little bit of talk about what, is to come, but it never quite gets there. And then 50 minutes in, we have kind of a time jump, and now they have a son, young young Josue, and uh, things are a little darker, and eventually at some point they get taken off to a camp. And that's about an hour in. So it's about a full hour of setup to get to this point where we go to the camp. And we have to also remember, it's it's not established at the beginning of the film, but we definitely realize it come the end because at the beginning we have a, a narration setting up the story that this is a simple story but not an easy one to tell and it sets up this idea about this being a fable and at the end of the film we find out that is the grown-up son who is recounting this story of his of his parents essentially right. and right. i think because of that i don't know it just it ends up coming across as kind of odd to me more so now because it really is like it's it's more just kind of a story of of his kind of his life i guess his his parents and and the the trauma that they went through it's not really just kind of a specific holocaust film and so i feel like that's the struggle that that i do find with this film because i i it almost feels like benini was not quite confident enough to do the whole story focused on the concentration camp element of it and needed an hour of setup, which it, it ends up feeling a little kind of clunky, especially because he is such a hammy actor. And more than ever before, I felt watching him, I'm like, I feel like he's kind of trying not to laugh at his own jokes, you know, like right. he's, he's like cracking a little bit. And that got a little frustrating. It just... You, you got the, I mean, speaking last week of Massimo Troisi and how he was kind of a Steve Martin um, actor who kind of moved into telling a more serious story. This really is kind of the Chevy Chase or perhaps more of the Martin Short sort of Saturday Night Live <laughs> actor who's now shifting tones to do something a little more serious and, uh, but while still maintaining the overly comedic character. And it just, but it, it becomes frustrating. But the problem is, I still get a sense that Benini wanted to make Schindler's List and just didn't know how. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a struggle. It's it's really a struggle with this film now. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess to, I, I'm curious what your take on this whole idea of fables in film is, because I think it's. It is something that is pointed out right at the beginning that this is a fable and uh, there is sorrow and like a fable is full of wonder and happiness. 
But I, I feel like sometimes in cinematic storytelling, especially because it's real world stories, it's not like talking animals or anything like that. It's hard to read those lines. This is something that Paul Haggis had issues with, with Crash, because, I mean, he has said I, it was a fable. It, it was never meant to be real world. I mean, the, I mean, it, obviously the stereotypes in that film are so over the top. It's just pointing out the moral issues of everything. It's not designed to be real world. And even more so, Joe versus the Volcano, a film that we love and have talked about on this show. This is something else that's meant to be a fable. And, uh, you know, I just wonder, is there, is there a struggle by the n- nature of doing that? Or is uh, Benini just doing a really poor job at it? Well, it's I think the latter. I think it's obtuse as a fable. And the problem is that no one who watches this movie after the opening where he says this is a fable is going to remember that they said this was a fable when you start introducing the camps, the trains and the gas chambers. Right. That's not a fable. And and I think part of the problem, if I'm going to take a, a page out of uh, Rob's uh, book and try to fix the movie, I think the problem is the perspective shift should have been around the the family and the kid much earlier. I think that's going to be the thing, because you get the sense that what he's trying to do is tell the story of this fable of how the child remembered his experience of being raised and protected from the Holocaust, right? And the the specific things that were happening to his family. But we spend so long in the the attempted like meet cute that it you know this protracted sort of pathologically protracted romance that we don't get the sort of what I wanted out of this movie, which is the insidious growth of the Nazi regime in the background. Right. That we get enough of what's going on as this like sea story so that when we actually get to the 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 camp, it feels earned. It does not feel earned here. It does not feel like a fable. It feels like a uh, just like a separate experience. I cede your point. I think there's quite a bit of truth to that. Um, I don't think it's a complete failure, though. I mean, I think Benini, I, I think that there are times where he's actually getting it. And I think there are times that work um, pretty well. Um, case in point, I really uh, think that what he has, the character of uh, the doctor, Dr. Lessing, um, that that relationship I find so fascinating throughout the world. This is Horst Buchholz that we talked about way back in um, the uh, Magnificent Seven. He's right. playing the doctor, and it's a really interesting character. He Guido befriends him when he's working as a waiter at the hotel, and they have this riddle game that they have going back and forth. I think that there's something great about the way that the character is set up there. And then once he's in the camp, the doctor sees him, and there's this sense that the doctor is going to kind of find a way to help him and figure something out. And it's like, it, it's there are a few moments of setup that allow for some interesting stuff to happen there, only to finally be let down and just heartbroken when when Guido realizes that the doctor's only interest in keeping him alive and kind of helping him and making sure that he can be around is to kind of continue this riddle game. I, I, that was a really... Um, well-constructed thread in this that I thought worked really well. And if we had more things like that that could have really made it work as opposed to Guido 
just kind of some of the just the silly antics that he often has, I feel like that could have really um, led to a stronger story. I do too. And I, 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 particularly because it would allow us to showcase some incredibly strong dramatic performances, right? I think what we have in Horst Buchholz, where we, where we get to see him as kind of the lovable businessman doctor sitting in the, in the uh, restaurant and their relationship as it grows is we get this complete transformation where he has lost his mind over riddles. That he that he doesn't have a special relationship with uh, Guido at all. He has the same relationship with many people about their riddles, and he has he is um, at the expense. Their relationship falls at the expense of these riddles. That there is, you know, we get this wonderful sort of background arc in that entire sequence where Guido thinks this is the doctor trying to help him. I love that setup. I love that he is so bent on potentially escape and and the crushing blow that happens when he realizes the doctor is just a riddle monger. I, I think was really special, and I think that's a that is an element of this movie that is to be celebrated, right? If that isn't um, just a, a lovely narrative arc. A, narrative bit in this movie i don't know what is um so i i totally agree with you i think it's i i think there are things about this movie that that don't work that is one of them that that really does yeah and another interesting element that i think works really well and unfortunately is never set up or or we there's nothing done with it and it frustrated me to no end we have obviously dora comes from kind of a different cloth than Guido, who seems to be more the country bumpkin who's come to town. And uh, and it's we don't know this, but after they have gotten married, they have had no contact with her family. You know, because I mean, he I mean, he basically steals her from, you know, from uh, her other uh, from her fiance and they run off together. We, there's no contact with her family and Josue's around. And it's not until uh, Dora's mother comes in when Guido had left to go uh, take care of something that grandma comes in and talks to Josue, has a really magical conversation that was just so special the way that that I mean, it's it's a fantastic actress, too. We have Marisa Paredes, the. Spanish mm-hmm. actress playing Dora's mom, who has this beautiful conversation with Josue that is just like, oh, this is setting up for something really special with these two. And then it's gone. Like, that's yeah. it. Like, because uh, Guido and Josue are off to the camps and Dora goes too. Yeah. And and that whole storyline with mom is just like thrown out the door. And I'm like, what was that for? It was like, there was a beautiful setup for something there and we never get anything out of it. Yeah, I, totally. Uh, it, unrequited relationships. And you bring up the fact that we have a wonderful actress there. We really do. And I think some of the real gems in this movie are gems that let these other performers really do their craft, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Benini in so many of these sequences is the distraction. Um you know, I was there's a crushing conversation about and I'm I'm quoting here what to do with the cripples in this movie. And mm. um you know, they're sitting at dinner together and it's all of these the sort of sophisticates talking about, you know, the, the teaching and they're using this conversation about math and and how to teach mathematics. You know, is it too complicated? 
uh, of an exercise of mathematics to discuss what to do with people who are in the eyes of of this cast, uh, you know, a drain on society. And if we would just quote kill them all, we would save one point two, you know, million billion whatever I, in the context of their conversation. And you can see. Uh, Dora is, is and and Guido are frustrated by this, and you see that that there is a relief when the fiance says, um, "Oh yeah, no, we we could never have that conversation." Where you think that the pivot is that he's actually a human and he is actually in the on the side of life, and it turns out he's not. He's just on the side of new math. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's just. It's just a, a horrible demonstration of people who are really selling it, who are are who are playing, you know, true demons in in uh, other cloth. It was fantastic. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's interesting because I feel like there are a lot of those moments in this film that that make this film like it's it's better than it should be because of. Benini's uh, just the way that he constructed things, but it's interesting because I, I feel like a lot of the 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 problem that people just flat out say that they have is the nature of kind of comedy and the Holocaust, and I I, I get that there's a line there. I mean, geez, you talk to, I mean, geez, I, I just recently watched uh, a clip from an interview. It was like an awards thing where they have a bunch of filmmakers there and they're all being interviewed together, and the interviewer was talking to Michael Haneke about films and Haneke talked about how how problematic it is for him to have anyone make a story about the Holocaust like he was offended by Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List because he's like you should not be making uh, you know entertainment out of uh, out of this story and so it's this like this is you've akin got, to war profiteering yeah right, right. so I mean, you've got like idea. you've got that level <laughs> of person who just walls off anything that is um in any way telling a story about this and, and i mean i'm definitely not on the haneke side of thing i think you should be able to use an art form to find the emotion and, and connect with people and, and find understanding and and compassion and stuff i think there's amazing stuff that filmmakers um, can do with that um i also don't have a problem with the humor as long as it makes sense which is why i didn't really have a problem with jojo rabbit and i in in the nature of this film i don't necessarily have an issue with benini's father going this largely circuitous route that kind of is nonsensical in order to just kind of protect his son's innocence uh, at the cost of you know everyone else in the camp it i don't by nature have a problem with that i think the issue i find now as i watch it is just just i don't feel benini has a really strong approach with it you know and i think going back to our conversation at the beginning i think ytd has a stronger approach at it. And I, I think that therein lies the difference with these two. Yeah, I, 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 I'm totally with you on this. I feel like all of the complaints of the movie that are complaints about, you know, comedy and the Holocaust, those aren't my problems. My problem is I don't think this is a great film. I think this is a good film with some strong moments but it's not a great film. Yeah. And it's and to that point, 
you know, it's a film that doesn't really know itself uh, and when it needs to be sincere and when it needs to be it, to to maintain its comic roots. Uh, is it slapstick versus sort of black comedy? Like, is this, uh, you know, is this more like a Death of Stalin uh, sort of a film, which I think is another one that has a, you know, strong roots and uh, strong, certainly strong comedic roots. And it tells a story using comedy that is hard. And uh, I, I think it does it incredibly well. Um, I I just struggle because I think at its root, Andy, this movie is wildly overrated. Well, yeah, and I mean that's uh, you know overrated, you know, versus just you know having a having a conversation about what you know what works in it and what doesn't. Yes, I mean clearly it's overrated. Clearly, the Miramax yeah. marketing cha- machine paired with the insane craziness of Roberto Benigni when he was on the press tours, just really spun this thing into just kind of this frenzy of uh, insanity that really kind of pushed it through the award season with everybody just uh, shouting its praises and largely not seeing any issues with it. And I think that therein lies the issue. And, uh, you know, had Miramax not been behind it, had Roberto Benigni not been such a uh, kind of a over-the-top uh, showboater when he was, uh, you know, accepting all of his awards and whatnot. I don't know if we would be having this conversation about this particular film. I mean, just the year before, Miramax put a lot of money into Sling Blade, and uh, because I mean that movie had come out, they picked it up. Billy Bob Thornton, though, nobody really knew who he was, so they put a huge campaign into that. Following up with this year, they just kind of continued that. They had two films um, getting quite a lot of awards, life or uh, nominations: "Life Is Beautiful" and "Shakespeare in Love." And I mean, Miramax just pumped the money into this film. I mean, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about kind of that whole battle when we get to uh, the awards uh, bit at the end. But I mean, they, I mean, in I think in I don't know one of the books written about this, Weinstein. Um, it was reported that he spent, I think, at least $5 million campaigning for uh, for Shakespeare in Love. And, I mean, I would imagine quite a bit of money pushing into this, too. I mean, I think for this film, he had Roberto Benigni move to L.A. for a month during the period where all of the voting was like the peak of peak voting period. And every night there were parties and Benigni was at every one of them. And he is such a friendly, over-the-top guy. It's like, of course, people are going to Take his name off when they when they vote for him for best actor and for uh, Life Is Beautiful, and I think that's what Harvey was really trying to do is get money, um, you know, push the money out the door so that he could get this film and Shakespeare in Love um, a lot of Oscars more so than the films that likely deserved it. I think that this was really the peak of that because I don't think after this they had. Uh, quite a time where they ended up really walking away with all the awards or, or you know, feeling like they had yeah. won everything, you know? I mean, certainly they had, I mean, it was a few years later, I think in 2003, they were involved in four of the five pictures that were nominated for Best Picture. And, yeah. you know, so, I mean, there's obviously other times like that, but this was the year that it felt like the awards that Miramax won were basically bought. I, the, I, I you know, I, I just hate the fact I, you watched, I assume the version that you have is in Italian and, and subtitled. Yeah. The HBO version, the version that's on 
Hulu, HBO Max right now is yeah. dubbed. Ooh. Yeah, that's the version I watched. And oh. I was I, I spent the entire time insulted by it. Like that's I funny. was just you, so mad. <laughs> I saw your node stupid dubbing. And I assumed that you were talking about like the whole issue that we've had many times with Italian films that they uh, record their they do all their audio after the Separately. fact. Yeah. Right. And I it was like, I don't remember, I don't think they did that with this film. I know we ran into that with uh the postman Il Postino last time because there were uh there was a French actor in amongst all the Italians and all of his yeah. lines were dubbed. But um, so that's what you're talking about. Yeah. That's no, but issue, just yeah. my experience. I just wanted to clear that up. It's terrible. <laughs> Don't watch that's... that version. You can find the other version, but it was interesting that they really uh, uh, flooded the market with this dubbed version, I think, at that time. And that is what is still floating around. I think they, you know, this was part of the Miramax experience was for all those people, all those future Amazon reviewers, we want them to be able to watch this movie without reading it. And so we're going to go heavy in on the dubbed version. And it did, did not perform as as well in the marketplace as the, uh, you know, certainly not um, in English speaking countries writ large. But that was the version that really hit the market here. That whole thing, you just reminded me that they actually theatrically released it um, yeah. as the dubbed. Right. I think you could go to the theater and see it either way um, after the award nominations had been announced. Yeah, I totally so, forgot about that. Right, and and so that was that was my experience, and I think that was so that that is a, a quintessentially like uh, Miramax strategy for that sort of anodyne experience of watching a movie that uh, watching a foreign film without having to read it, being able to hear the, the and then just being frustrated because their lips didn't line up with the words. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a real onion of of frustration. Well, that's yeah. layer uh, after layer. And that is such a frustration with Miramax anyway, because that's largely what they they operated on. That's how they yeah. began in the 80s is they would take these foreign films and they would do what they needed to adjust it for the, the way that they saw for an American audience. And that meant sometimes re-editing the movie. And a lot of people had issues with that, but it still was something like, that, you know, filmmakers like filmmakers. Right. Exactly. And uh, it was just it's it's a frustrating thing that it still obviously is happening. And I, I believe actually Hayao Miyazaki, I think um, they had approached Miyazaki about that and Miyazaki pretty much flatly said, you'll never touch anything that I've done. Yeah. So. One of the, there are some sequences, again, speaking of language, uh, by way of a really terrible segue, there are some issues that I have with the, uh, uh, with one scene in particular that I think is supposed to be, uh, it, it's supposed to be satirical, that sort of black comedy bit. Uh, and I'm supposed to be laughing, I think. But because the the film struggles with tone, I don't take it that way. And I'm talking about the sequence where, in which Guido volunteers to translate the German soldiers' instructions to new members to the camp, to the concentration camp. And in doing so, as the the guard is is giving his orders. Uh, what we are meant to think is that he's giving orders for, you know, the bathrooms are over here. You're going to wear these clothes. You're going to report to work. It's all not good stuff, right? It's just like this is this is the horror of your life right now. But we don't know that because what we have is Guido, who is translating for his son, even though he does not speak German, right? So the the German soldier speaks. Guido translates something 
completely irrelevant to what this soldier is saying. And what he's saying is there are rules to the camp. It's all a game. You have to earn points. And anybody who wins a points wins a tank. And it's really great. And the kid is adorable, is a a triumph of a young performer in this movie. Uh, And his face is just lit up because he now believes he's part of this game. So I am torn in this sequence because I actually find like I'm really drawn to the warmth of what this father is trying to do for his son. And also, I am so out of the realm of believability uh, because of, I think, struggles with tone that I can't take it as as a heartwarming joke. I what all I'm thinking about is there is no way that German soldier doesn't understand a little Italian, at least enough to understand that he's being had. It, yeah, it's it stretches the lines of believability there. That's one of those areas I kind of let go because it ends up playing pretty cute. My my biggest issue with it, which it comes after the fact, is like, does anybody is anybody concerned that no one actually knows what the real rules are? <laughs> right. That they, they actually right. might just get killed for turning left instead of right. How do they all end up at work the next day? Yeah. Right. I'm, I presume that that's <laughs> what was being instructed. Right. Right. So there's that whole issue. And that that falls into, I think you could say it all falls under the whole idea of this fable, but it also just ends up feeling like a weaker script point because it just doesn't feel like there's any way for the young son to have seen all of that in a way that it played out that way. And that's that's my struggle with the idea of, of, of this being kind of this fable is, especially being told from the son's point of view, is I keep wanting to go, okay, well, how is he seeing this? Because this is clearly meant to be his impression of how things played out. And mm-hmm. I don't feel like when I see scenes like this, I'm like, I just don't feel like I can... I, I feel like for a scene like this to really work right, you need to be able to see it from both points of view, right? You need to be able to see it from the realities of what dad was really doing, but also from the son's viewpoint of how it's all being interpreted in that child mind. And I just don't think those two mesh. I think it's all just designed to be this story for this kid, and it's just this crazy thing. And it ends up yeah. it ends up becoming more problematic, even if it's really cute. Nobody here really knows what's going on. It's it's mm-hmm. does, it's it's set up in a way where it's you, you have all of these people in this uh, you know these new prisoners here who have no idea what the rules are, unless and we don't ever find this out. Which if this would have made it a stronger scene if somebody in the room actually did speak German. And then after Guido had gone through this whole thing for his son, this other person could say, okay, so this is really what we have to do, you know, so that at least, at least we know, okay, there, there clearly is somebody who's still kind of in on the game with, with Guido for Josue, but is able to still kind of help out. And, you know, we, we establish, we start establishing at least a character, another, another of these prisoners. But it just it, that is another thing that really never goes anywhere. I was kind of hoping that the other prisoner that we start kind of meeting and talking with would become somebody that could kind of help shepherd all of that. Yes, surrogate, an advocate for exactly. for us. Yes, right? this right. is a Bartolomeo. Right. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, played by Pietro de Silva, who was who was great, if not uh, sullen. He really nailed sullen. He definitely felt like a prisoner. <laughs> he sure did. Yeah. 
Uh, okay. Well, it, I, I think part of so much of that is that the game and the kind of perspective shift that that uh, Benini is demanding of us um, has not been set up before we get to the camp. Right? The game is centrally important to the thread of this movie holding together, and because we only get it so late that the the real adventure feels like it doesn't start until an hour into the movie, if not later. Yeah. And and I think that's that's frustrating. Um, I was I, I was listening to a uh, to Tig Notaro's podcast mm-hmm. this weekend, and she was she. It, there's an episode she does with Ira Glass, and um, it, it's she. <laughs> Ira asks her a question about her other acting roles, and she, she says, "You know, often when people come up to me, when directors come up to me, and they they are about to give me notes." Um, you know, they'll be they'll come to me on Star Trek or they'll come to me. I'm a cop or they'll come to me. Right. She she does a lot of stuff. She says, I always stop them. And I say, wait, 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 wait. Let me just remind you. Tig Notaro has no range. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing at this because I think she's delightful and she's very, very funny. And also Roberto Benini has no range. Like yeah. it is. It's just. From Roberto to Benini, that's what you get. And there are some sweet moments that really lock into his exact identity, where his what he is able to deliver meets what the scene needs delivered of it. And I think it's delightful, but most of the time I, I struggle with it. And the 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 sequence that I, where I struggle the most, where I feel like so much of the story has to pay off, is the death in the alley scene. And... um and I, I want so much more of it than I feel like I've gotten. Do you have thoughts or comments on our ultimate resolution? I Well, that's an area I feel like I would end up disagreeing with you. Uh, I feel like that's a point where it actually, his, his over-the-topness ends up working for me because I feel like he's in a place right now. I mean, and, and I, I just don't understand. Like, I was on re-watching, I'm like, okay, so would he and... Guido or would Guido and Jose would they have both just lived and if they didn't bother running out at this particular point like I felt like the Germans are trying to get out of here because the Americans are coming uh, so did he end up putting them both at risk by this whole thing like I, I really yeah. like the ending really troubled me this viewing and so I don't know I guess as I watched this I I felt like Regardless of all that, I felt like once he was kind of like trying to get into the other camp and he's kind of dressed up like or half dressed up like a woman and gets caught, I I don't know. I just really bought into that last moment that he had as he's kind of goofing for Josue, who's watching from that little secret box of theirs. And that just I I felt like that carried uh, some heft for me, like taking him around the corner. Um, and just hearing the guns go off, I felt like the music hit was a little strong there. It it really kind of punched a little too hard. Um, but I I don't know. I felt like it was a balance that worked for me. I I feel like we go to movies to be played with a little bit, right? I mean, yeah. I we go to movies to be pushed in certain emotional directions. This this one for me felt particularly unscrupulously manipulative. Uh, I I think there are some elegant things to about the way it's presented and i feel like the uh, the tonino delicoli uh camera here especially you know we talk about needing to see from the kids perspective 
this is where they get it right, right? When we look from his perspective in the box and watch his dad doing the clown step, um, you know, with the, the soldier behind him, I think that shot is a quintessentially perfect shot mm-hmm. for this movie. Yeah. And I found myself like all of the weight of that shot was in in my heart as it's deflating as we walk around the corner, which I thought was just a, you know, it ended up looking like a, a sitcom set. Like it just it didn't it didn't feel real or natural to me. It felt um, it, it felt like, OK, this is the guy that you've been following all along and you know what's coming. There's going to be no surprise. We're marching him to his death and you're going to it's a march. There's a march to death. It's a march. We're, cu- we're cutting in again. <laughs> it's we're still marching to the boom, 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 boom. And now he's dead. Yeah, I just felt I, I felt like it was too much. You know, I can't fault you for that. You know, I certainly feel like it's it's one of those things that uh, you know, yeah, yeah. it's pretty big. It's pretty broad. It's It's pretty telegraphed. Like um, there are a lot of things pointing to the fact that this is what's going to be happening. So uh, so get ready for it. I guess I I just and that particular moment, um, even on this rewatch, I I felt the connection between those two, and yeah, yeah, I, I think that it ended up working okay. Let's talk about getting it made, Andy. Yeah, Benini, um, he wrote the script with Vincenzo Cerami, um, and he was inspired by the story of Rubino, Rubino Romeo Salmoni, uh, who wrote the book, In the End, I Beat Hitler. And that book had some moments of comedy in it. And that's what really kind of drew Benini to it. Uh, Salmoni was an Italian Jew who was in Auschwitz and survived and then reunited with his parents, but found his uh, brothers had been murdered. And um, likewise, Benini, uh, his father was a member of the Italian army, and he had spent several years in a Nazi labor camp and telling, recounting stories of all of this to Roberto and his siblings, he used kind of comedy to tell the story. And those are the things that Benini kind of pulled on and and found a way to kind of uh, tell this story in a way that had humor to it. And that was, uh, I think, largely the direction that he chose to go. And like I said, he, he approached a lot of um, uh, Jewish groups and Holocaust groups to talk to talk about it beforehand. And I think largely, I think that I don't find any of the of that sort of stuff offensive. And I guess that's, you know, I I think that he did a good job of telling a story that felt um, okay, like not offensive to me as far as the Holocaust goes. I just I feel like that the problem is just in Benini and his inability to uh, to make a, a good film. I feel like I feel like he read the book and he said, "Oh, this is a Holocaust story with some comedy in it." I'm I'm I really truck with comedy. <laughs> I'm a comedian. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> suck all of the other stuff out because I don't I don't need it. I don't need it. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's a, it's very interesting. I've not I've not read the book, uh, but it sounds like reading the synopsis of it. It sounds like a, a harrowing story uh and it sounds like a guy who did does artfully craft uh you know his experience of comedy as a way to survive yeah the holocaust right and and i think that's a that is a noble effort and i um uh it just doesn't feel like this is this is the honorific that really nails that experience unfortunately uh, yeah yeah uh anybody else you want to talk about in the cast that you're uh, 
that you're... I just want to say uh, Nicoletta Bros- Broski is, uh, plays Dora. She is Benini's real-life wife. And I have to say, she is just a bore to watch. She's beautiful, but... I just like, what is up with her as an actress? Like through the whole beginning, it's like he's just bumping into her and it's just like smiling like this dead smile. I really struggled with her everywhere in the film, um, which and they they were only saved because of Giorgio Cantarini, who played Josue, who was adorable, like you already said. Nobody has a stomping fit better than Josue. It's the best one right. I've ever seen. Um, so anyway, that's my opinions of the family. Well, I struggle with the family too, but I I don't want to fault Nicoletta Brasky because I I feel like she was given exactly nothing to work with, and I think this is where the movie is at its greatest sort of fault in terms of an an ego piece for. And I'm that's not that's disingenuous. I'm not, but it just feels like very much. Uh, anytime she's on screen, it's an opportunity for him to be mugging the camera, yeah. and I found that exhausting. That's what right. makes the first hour such a slog because there she's given nothing. She's a, right. just she's. A, my as well be doing that to a poster right um and and so i i found that hard so i i'm with you it's a snooze of a part and and i felt (laughs) for her i really i felt for her like what is maybe in the second half maybe when they get to the camp she'll be giving something she was given a longing stare into the distance out the window in the middle of the night that was her big swan song moment Yeah, yeah i i just it was uninspired Sad. Really, it was, yeah, really frustrating. I mean, you know, even with the reunion at the end uh, between her and Josue, yeah. I'm like, meh. And talk about the most anemic final freeze frame. Uh, I just, I, <laughs> right. We did it. We did it. We won. Like, that was, I was, uh, I, I ended on a real whimper for me. Well, I mean, it ties into the whole game. And I guess to that end, it makes sense because you, you know, in Josue's yeah. mind, they've won. They've got the tank. He's with his mom and everything. Everyone's happy. But it just, it does feel very like, huh, okay. That's, even the narration, the final narration at the end, it just, it felt like they were just wanting to get out quick, you know, which I know I, you want to get out quick when you're telling yeah, a story, right. but it's just like maybe a little too quick. Well, I exactly. I do feel like sometimes ending on a freeze frame is um, is a, a, sig- a signal that maybe you don't know how to end the movie. Yeah, right. Right. I, I think there are <laughs> not just there a, are freeze times frame, when it a freeze frame with some voiceover. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, I, I feel like the, uh, um, you know, the there are times when it works and I just want to really put a showcase around. Hudson Hawk, which where it really, <laughs> of course you do. I think you'll know it really works. It's a it's a real celebra- celebration of the of the tool. I hear Scorsese references it quite a bit. I think he does. I think he does. Yeah. Uh, anyway, can I talk about the uh, music, Pete? Yeah, let's do it. This is uh, music by uh, Nicola Piovanni. I love this score. Uh, I mean. It's interesting. The last film and this film had such just, I feel, iconic scores that I feel rightfully uh, won awards. Uh, It was just, it's such a beautiful score. It works really well for this particular film. And so, um, you know, I I don't know. I'm just, I'm really taken by it. I think the music is beautiful here. Um, I imagine you have some issues, though. Why? Well, because I I feel like this falls into the same camp a little bit of like last week's where perhaps it uses its themes a little too frequently. It 100% does, Andy. I'm just (laughs) messing with you. It's so obnoxious. (laughs) Write a new theme. Come on. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's but but to your point, it is a lovely it, it, it is a lovely score. Just put it on repeat and you can score <laughs> lots of movies with it. Apparently, that's what they did here. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm, no. I'm with you. It's it's beautiful. And just want um, more of it. I have one question, uh, and then we can move uh, into the awards a little more. Um, the editor, Simona Paghi. Do you yeah. feel like that is like Simon Pegg's like Italian alter ego? <laughs> like, I want the two of them in a room together. <laughs> I had not seen this at all. It makes me really want to to uh, uh, investigate. She's got 78 uh, editor credits, and it makes me think, gosh, I wonder if there's a Simon Pegg credit in there somewhere. Wouldn't that Buried. be great? That's, That's really like, funny. With uh, it, Only if um, the, um, was it Nick Angel, the music yes. supervisor, also was involved in that right. particular <laughs> property. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, you know, what's, uh, what's actually really funny is uh, she's also, Simona Paggi is also the editor on the Jesus Rolls. Oh, uh, look at that. The Turturro. Yeah, that's uh, that's currently cruising at a 4.3 on the IMDb Oof. scale. Just to follow up yeah, on the Jesus Rolls. Just in Rolls. case people want to yeah. know more about that one, yeah. Cool. All right. Awards, Pete. Awards. Oh, let's talk about awards season, Andy. This is why this is uh, in our current series. It is best foreign, or it's a foreign film nominated for best picture. In this particular case, it's the 1998 Oscars. It was nominated for best picture along with Shakespeare in Love, Elizabeth, Saving Private Ryan, and The Thin Red Line. This again, the Miramax machine, Saving Private Ryan is the one everybody was saying was going to win, although you know, Terrence Malick always has his fans, but uh, Saving Private Ryan generally considered the, the film to, to beat. And of course, Miramax did with Shakespeare in Love, still <laughs> quite the Oscar controversy. As much as I love Shakespeare in Love uh, and as many problems as I have with Saving Private Ryan, I, I can't help but wonder if uh, the wrong film was uh, nom- or, or won there. And honestly, Elizabeth, I would also... Uh, say that is completely worth winning Best Picture. Stellar, stellar film. Benini won Best Actor. You may remember this, Pete. In fact, I think you referenced it last week. Let's just I did. do a we're whole gonna, episode. We're going to do a, do a whole podcast. <laughs> just, on. And I've watched so many of Benini, like now, uh, it, it talk show, Benini talk show experiences. I feel like there is enough material to do oh, you could. a a Benini talk show appearances and award-winning uh, <laughs> uh, experiences as a podcast. Like this movie, you may get to a point where you're like, I've had enough of the hamming it up, fella. <laughs> uh, but yes, this is the chair jumping. He ran across the chairs. He wanted to make love to everybody. Uh, Benini won Best Actor. And this is the only second time that an actor had directed himself in an Academy Award-winning performance. The other was, uh, at, le- at the time, the other was Lawrence Olivier for Hamlet back in 1948. And he's only the fourth person to be nominated for the Oscars for Best Actor, Director, and Screenplay in the same year. The others, this is the company Benini is in, Orson Welles for Citizen Kane, Woody Allen for Annie Hall, and Warren Beatty for Heaven Can Wait and Reds. So, that is and an incredibly <laughs> auspicious crew. Quite. Like, Quite. Can, you, can you imagine saying, okay, fantasy dinner table. <laughs> it's gonna be me and these four guys <laughs> right yeah little peculiar little peculiar also well so i want to make a love to you <laughs> uh director benini was nominated for best director but lost to steven spielberg for saving private ryan best film editing lost to save a private ryan sorry uh simone Napegi. uh foreign language film okay 
Best Foreign Language Film. This is the third time in our series after Z and then The Emigrants, although that was across several different years, where a film was nominated for Best Picture and Best Foreign Language Film. This ended up winning Best Foreign Language Film, again, because of the, you know, the need at the time where, hey, it's going to win for that. We don't need it to win for Best Picture. Now, this is where I have a serious problem, Pete. Best Foreign Language Film, this one. The other nominees, Central Station, Children of Heaven, Tango, and The Grandfather. Tango, it's a very arty film. It didn't float my boat, but I can see why it would get nominated. Beautiful cinematography. The Grandfather, it had an amazing ending, which made for the film. I don't know if I'd put it up here. Children of Heaven is a really good film with some amazing child performances. And I just got to say, Children of Heaven, Central Station, The Grandfather, and uh, this film, amazing child performances coming out of Mm -hmm. this year. It's really mind-boggling. But Pete, Central Station is like, it is top of top class film. I mean, it is such a strong film, incredible performances, absolutely should have won best foreign language film, absolutely should have been the film that received the best uh, picture nomination instead of this film. If you haven't seen Central Station, go watch it. It is so, so, so good. The actress, uh, I'm forgetting her name right now, she was nominated for best best actress, along with um, uh, Kate Blanchett in Elizabeth, two incredible performances that both were overlooked by Gwyneth Paltrow because of the Miramax machine, as cute as Gwyneth is. Uh, it's it's just incredibly frustrating. Central Station absolutely should have won this award. I have not seen it, but I applaud your enthusiasm, <laughs> sir. I'm very excited now. You have done. You you're be. a regular. <laughs> if there were a Weinstein of the next reel, you, sir, are him. That was my marketing muscle right there. Oh, it was great. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Regular P.T. Barnum over here. <laughs> I've got a song for you. <laughs> Hey, (laughs) (laughs) ladies and gents. All right. Anyhow, enough of that. Uh, Best music, original dramatic score. Uh, This was that small period where they had a a dramatic and uh, comedic scores. It won for that. Best original screenplay, lost to Shakespeare in Love. Overall, Roberto Benigni ended up having 16 nominations for Best Actor, and he won 11 of them. Very well loved. Yes, I know. And then the David Di Donatello Awards, the Italian Oscars, it won for Best Film, Best Actor, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, Best Producer. Uh, It's odd that they do Best Film and Best Producer as separate, but hey, they do. Those are all wins. Um, Benini also won a Scholar's Jury David Award, whatever that is, from the David Di Donatello Awards. It only lost four. It lost Best Sound to Hard Boiled Egg, Best Music to Tano de Morire, Best Supporting Actor to Silvio Orlando in Aprile, and Best Editing to Rehearsals for War. So, I mean, it did really, really well. And I think it was just riding on the kind of the excitement of the particular film. But Andy, I'm sure none of that turned into box office success because <laughs> it's a foreign film. Who sees those? Yeah, right? Well, Benini's film cost $20 million to get made, which is about $32 million in today's dollars. The film opened in its home country of Italy, December 20th, 1997, before finally opening here in the U.S., October 23rd, 98, opposite Apt Pupil, which we've talked about on the show, Pleasantville, Soldier, and everyone's favorite, Orgasmo. Now, everyone. Uh, everyone, I mean, right? I'm everyone. surprised we haven't covered that. Me too. 
Now, what's interesting here is that this was a very limited release on six screens, but it was still in the top 20. By week three, however, it was clear that it was going to have a slow burn box office and Miramax slowly started increasing its screens. It did stay in the top 20 and then had a huge boost with the announcement of its Best Picture nomination, moving it all the way up to spot eight, then doing so again the weekend right after the Oscars into spot eight. And that is when it's hit, it hit its highest screen count of 1,136 screens. I don't know how many of those were dubbed versus uh, subtitled. It did slowly trickle out after that, but the Weinsteins did prove that they knew what it took. The film ended up with a domestic gross of $57.5 million, and internationally was even more popular with a gross of $172.5 million. That gives it an adjusted total gross of $368.2 million and an adjusted profit per finished minute of nearly $2.9 million. That is a wildly successful film, Pete, and possibly one worth jumping on seats for. That is well... Really jumping on seats I, for two point nine million per minute. I would jump. I jump seats. on a seat. Oh, I would, right. I would I even jump on, jump on the couch on with Tom Cruise. International television. Uh, it is. Uh, it's a surprise to me, uh, but I, I'm glad we talked about it. It certainly helps put it in a little bit of context, uh, particularly the marketing machine. The real question is, if we rank it high tonight, will that improve its uh, long term success? How much? How much do you think we matter? How much does Miramax's weight right. <laughs> uh, come from our rankings? Who's, who's getting paid now is a great for, question. for this? Uh, Disney, probably, right? They, they're they the end of everything. They're at like a point, central node. At, at this point, I would say <laughs> it is them, weirdly, yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, because it's a Miramax. But interestingly, yeah. like it was, it's kind of hard to find. Like all I could find was an old DVD at the library. It's yeah. not an incredibly uh, popular film anymore. You can, if you change, if you get a VPN and you change your country of origin and you happen to have a credit card that has a Canadian residence, you can get it on uh, iTunes in Canada. Mm. But you can't get it on iTunes here which yeah. I thought was very strange. No such thing. How did you find uh, it then? It is oh, on it HBO, HBO. Max. It's right, HBO right. Max. That terrible, terrible viewing experience <laughs> that was the HBO Max version of this. So, right, right. So there is sure that. I'm There's sure that this option. is high on their list of fixing, fixing that great wrong. Uh, all right, we should take it to the mat, Andy, don't you think? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. There you will see a list, a stack ranked list of all the movies we have ever talked about on this show. If you want to participate, swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart. It should take you directly to Life is Beautiful in the flick chart database where you can add it to your own list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, Life is Beautiful or The Birdcage? I'd watch The Birdcage first. Yeah, this is this is going to be interesting because before a rewatch, I would have said Life is Beautiful. Now, upon yep. rewatch, The Birdcage. Yep. Life is Beautiful or The Brood. <laughs> I will take The Brood. Give me those demon babies. <laughs> right. Life is Beautiful or The Hudsucker Proxy. You know, we can't we can't let that slip that The Brood also has some uh, outstanding child performances. <laughs> True. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I had to fit that joke in a little bit late. <laughs> Life is beautiful or the Hudsucker proxy. Hudsucker. Uh, mm -hmm. Is this where the line is? I'd say is life drawn? is beautiful. Uh, all right. Here we go. Here we go. I honestly oh. I don't care either way, but I'm gonna still I'm gonna still say it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here we go. One, One two, two, three, scissors. Oh, for crying out loud. 
Wow. Sorry. Now I feel guilty that I won. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Life is beautiful or Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Oh, goodness. Life is beautiful. Catwoman and all. I'm going to say Star Trek V. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You know, what the hell? Here we go. Okay. One, One two, two, three. Scissors. Paper. Oh, again? Really? <laughs> I thought I was being so smart. So strategic. I thought you were going to be smarter, and I went with the same. Uh, life is beautiful or East of Eden? East of Eden. Yeah, I'll see East of Eden. Life is beautiful or My Dinner with Andre? Oh, My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, My Dinner with Andre. Life is beautiful or Duck, you sucker. <laughs> I love that we have that on our list. That's right. I am, I am Duck, you sucker. Me too. Life is Beautiful or the 1999 remake, The Thomas Crown Affair. Thomas Crown. Thomas Crown. Life is Beautiful or The Young Girls of Rochefort. Life is Beautiful. I will take The Young Girls of Rochefort. Here we even, go. Even though we have a really creepy uh, oh, it's creepy. May-December romance in Yeah, there. right. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, one, one, two, two three. three. Rocks. Hey, hey, you, <laughs> you learned... Life is Beautiful takes it, and that puts Life is Beautiful in spot 406 out of 465, which is pretty low. It's about a 13% on our chart. It didn't fare great on my list, but it fared far better on my list than it did on our our list. We do not agree with me, apparently. <laughs> uh, how did it do on yours? It, you know, I re-ranked it before it was yeah. in the top 25% of my of my chart. On re-ranking, I just felt like the issues that I have with it, while I still think there are good things in this film, I just ended up struggling more with the nature of it and with Benini particularly. Uh, it landed in spot 3180 out of 4450, which is a 29%, pretty low. Whoa, yeah, yeah. that's a that's a fall. Fall from grace. Uh, mine, uh, it was uh, similar to yours. Uh, I had ranked it on memory when you first got me into flick chart and I thought, oh, I remember really loving that movie, you know, probably five stars. Uh, this one, it dropped to 503 on my chart out of 1463. So it's still pretty high, all things considered. Uh, I, this is one of those experiences where if I go by the algorithm, uh, it should be a three and a half star on other services. So over at uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel should be a three and a half star. Um, I, I don't like it that much. Like if it's a two, two and a half star, um, experience, then, uh, I I feel pretty good. Uh, I actually removed my original ranking for this movie, uh, which was a four and a half star, and mm. I just did not get the joy out of it this yeah. time. And I, I feel like I, I get what I get what people are saying about it. I get it now. I get, I'm sorry it took so long. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, it's easy to love a film that is. Uh, I mean, it really is full of passion and life and joy, right? I mean, there's a lot yeah. of that, and it's in full form. And I mean, it's easy to walk out of a film like that and just go, "Oh, it makes me feel happy." I mean, I get yeah. it. I definitely get it. I didn't drop quite as low as you. It's so funny because our letterboxes are so opposite of our flick charts today. I I still am like I'm three stars. I still think there's there are good things in here. I enjoy kind of it for what it is. I just don't find it nearly special like I, I did at the time. So I'm three stars in a heart, but it's it's like, am I going to return to this? I really doubt it. So where, where, yeah. are you, where are you landing? Are you at two uh, and a half or two? What's your final? 
resting spot? I could do two and a half. I'm going to do two and a half. I'm going to give it a heart. We're going to call it the end. Okay. So it'll sit for us. Uh, it'll sit for the next real represented as a three star. With Correct. Heart. Yeah. All right. All right. I, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. fine. Yeah. All right. Well, th- you know, we got it out of the way. What does that mean for us now? What do we do next? Just a few short years, we are going to be jumping to the year 2000, and we are going to be talking about a fantastic Ang Lee film, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. How is it that we've not talked about this movie? I don't know. I just don't know. Well, Nearly now we have the chance. decade we have not talked about this movie. Right. Very few Ang Lee films in general. <laughs> Other than Hulk. We did which talk we about Hulk. Over at Marvel Movie Minute. All right. Well, that one started it, but now may the dominoes fall. I am very excited to talk about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Hidden Dragon, Hidden Dragon next week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, well, I sometimes they doeth. Uh, we've, we've split. We've split on this today. Ooh. You uh, you are living in uh, in Amazon. I have uh, <laughs> in moved the sewers over to of Amazon. <laughs> Dregs, and I am in Letterboxd uh, today with the review that I would like to read. Uh, would you like to do the honors? Uh, yes, sure. I, uh, <laughs> well, I actually have two one stars. The first one, this is, it just, it makes me laugh because it's one star by TJ who gives it one star and says, canceled order. <laughs> I, I, apparently that's what, uh, what TJ does. Is this, with- is this what we're doing right now? Is this, we're just going to read, we're only reading Amazon reviews that actually relate to the shipping product. Is that what we're doing? I, you that know, would be I, great. I'm ready I, to pivot. If I find those that, that are like that silly, it's like, I'm going to give okay. it one star because I canceled my order. The other one is by his humble servant, gives a one star and says, uh, movie had a very depressing and sad ending. If you like uplifting movies, stay away from this one. (laughs) Okay, his humble servant. Did not read the tin. Okay. Uh, I've got a very special, I like to call this a VSP, a very special, uh, no, VSR. It's a VSR, a very special review um, and it is a review of Life is Beautiful from uh, one of our community members over on Letterboxd, uh, the one and only the inimitable Nick Langdon. Uh, and I'd been holding off on reading this review until after I'd put my notes together for this movie because I knew that he was not a huge fan. He is a He's a noted antagonist of this movie, but I hadn't quite gotten the entire picture, and so I'd like to share this with you now. Now, Nick has actually given this a half-star review, Ooh, okay. uh, so he's he does not care for it. Like almost everyone else on planet Earth, I've never seen Jerry Lewis's infamous The Day the Clown Cried. However, having now endured Life is Beautiful, I have some idea of just how badly a comedy drama set during the Holocaust can fail. 
I'm a fan of the darkest of black comedies, as oft-times the only way to cope with evil and death is to laugh. However, here, writer-director star Roberta Benini chooses another direction, deciding that schmaltzy, uplifting, feel-good attempts at humor can somehow mesh with tragedy, and to say that no such meshing is achieved is a colossal understatement. Benini plays Guido, a Jew living in fascist Italy, and from the start, he's a deeply irritating screen presence. <laughs> Imagine a goofy version of Pepe Le Pew doing a bad cover version of the waiter section from Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, and you're halfway there. But despite this, Benini clearly expects the audience to fall in love with him. The first act is made up of Guido's unfunny antics as he annoys everyone he comes across, but somehow charms a woman away from her fiancé to marry him instead. Do I need to mention the plot is stupid and relies heavily on coincidences? Cut to a few years later, and he and his family are sent to a concentration camp, but Guido decides to pretend it's all a game for the benefit of his young son. This is clearly where we, the audience, are expected to swoon and swear our utmost affection for this character, whereas what actually happens is we only hate the writer-director star even more for the very idea. This is a premise worth admiring. Some might think me hard-hearted for not swooning here, nor at the amazingly ill-conceived happy ending, but rather, I'd contend that anyone who does should embark on a long conversation with himself. The German-Jewish philosopher Theodor Adorno once said, there can be no poetry after Auschwitz. And while this can be contested as art is essential to understanding every aspect of the human experience, I think most should agree that the Holocaust does not mix well with japes and gambles. This is a movie for watching through a palm to the face. Ah, Nick. Poetry. (laughs) Poetry. And I am uh, currently reviewing my life. (laughs) (laughs) My life choices, apparently. Also, disc cracked. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.